Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Deer with your host, Bruce Hutchin. Let's Talk Deer is presented by Grandpa Ray Outdoors, owned and operated by John O'Brien. And if you haven't uh, joined Team Grow, Team, G-R-O, uh, you can do that at Grandpa Ray Outdoors. And what you're going to find is John and I are going to come up with a series of seminars that we're putting on the Team Grow page. So you have to be a member of Team Grow to get the in information that John and I are going to share. Um, on today's episode, we have Zach Haas. And Zach is a senior biologist, aquatic biologist for Wisconsin Land and Pond Resources. He also has his own um, company called Creek Bottom Land Management. Zach, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Chris. On, on Facebook Live, we just finished up about 20 minutes on Facebook Live, folks, and I mentioned Zach lives in a little town in East Central um, Wisconsin that's a speed trap, and I do have a T-shirt, coffee mug, and ticket from his wonderful <laughs> little town. So I helped, uh, I helped do whatever they do with the money in his little town. But anyway, <laughs> and Zach... Zach lives in in some really good deer hunting area. There's a lot of tracks, you know, public land tracks and private land, but a lot of marsh in his area. The goose hunting is really good in his area, and um, and I've hunted and 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 hunt. I've hunted deer and hunted geese around um, where Zach lives. So Zach, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and and we're just going to start off with the basics, and the basics is. You know, I've been asked and I've helped some people, you know, say, hey, on your 20, your 40 acres, you don't have any water. And one thing I've learned in my five years is, you know, interviewing white-tailed experts across the country is that you need three things. You need cover, water, and forage to grow big deer, keep big deer, you know, keep them off your neighbors, that type of thing. And so we're going to talk with Zach, and Zach's a good friend of John O'Brien's at Grand Prairie Outdoors, and and Zach knows his stuff. And one thing you're going to hear at uh, as we talk today, it's it's going to be facts. So you might want to take out a notebook and, and write some things down because we're going to go from the beginning, and um, you know walk you all the way through what it takes to build uh, a living uh, eco um, system, you know, on your property. So Zach, let's start right off. I've got yeah. uh, 40 acres. I don't have any. Um, I don't have any water. What should I do? Get water. <laughs> yeah. So so first and foremost, yeah. I mean, it's if you're missing the elements with anything. I mean, if you're missing, you know, a good forage system, you got to work on that. If you're missing cover, you got to work on that. If you don't have one of the key three items that you just mentioned, food, cover, and water, you need to work on it. So. When you look around and if, let's say, you know, especially in some of these areas that are more sand country and you don't have water on your property, there's a good chance that those deer aren't using your property year long. They're probably going to your neighbor's land that has that nice pond on their property you now or water, water trough. They're, they're leaving your land to find something. So it's, it's one of those important things. If you don't have water, it should be a priority in 2020 to get water on your land. Okay. I hear what you're saying. And a lot of people have told me I need water, but how do I do it? Do you just go out and get a kiddie pool or go out and get a big tire and put a liner in it? Or do I get a, you know, go to a ag store or farm and ranch store and get a big, you know, 20-gallon, 50-gallon, 100-gallon tub? What do I do? 
Yep. So it's all going to base on, for one, how much uh, investment someone's putting in, into their deer, which we all, let's be honest, we all as hunters put a lot of investment in some some crazy things. But, uh, you know, you can start from anything from starting with a, t a water tub, all, going all the way up to an actual wildlife, built wildlife pond. Um, and the reason why we like to establish actual water, so, you know, a lot of people come up to me, uh, people in Michigan, they looked like I was on something when I mentioned uh, having different water sources, because once again, like my area, they have a lot of marsh, they have a lot of streams, a lot of creeks. Um, that's not quality water. Um, and there's a big emphasis on what the difference is there. But anyways, it's, you know, so you can start with a tub, even banks um, outdoors. I know they have actually, a, it's called the water tank, where it's actually a 100 gallon tank system. Um, but then for me personally, I like to do wildlife ponds just because there's a lot of reasons going to it. I'm sure we'll get into them. But um, so kind of the start is for A, to know what's your capabilities. Do you have equipment where you can dig a pond? Um, do you have the, the time and the money to, to actually put a pond in? Or do you, you know, kind of just want to do something quick, which as we know with land management, when you do things quick and easy, usually not the right thing to do. Okay, so how do I choose the location of my? And I'm I'm not going to put a, a, a you know a kitty pond in. I it shouldn't call it that. A tub, I guess that's a better better word. So sure. I'm not interested in the tub because that's not going to have any growth. That's not going to have any ecology in it. That's not going to have frogs and and we'll talk later about some of the aquatic plants because there's nothing to grow them. I mean, yeah. So. Okay, so how do I pick where I put my pond? Yep, so so first of all, if you kind of want to look at your, your property um, acreage. Um, so starting off, you know, first figure out how many, how many water sites do I need on my property. And what I usually do, my rule of thumb, is you should always do a minimum of two on your property and, and have them on each side of your property, essentially. You know, so if you have one on the north side, put one on the south side. If you have one east, go on the west. Um, just to get a little more deer families involved. Also to take it, you know, into effect that that mean old doe that doesn't want anyone in her territory. Take that into always effect. Uh, but as you go up in size, it's usually about a um, one wildlife pond. I'd say it's per 25 acres or so. And from there, then you just keep on establishing. You know, so that's where a big variety even of areas having some high and dry. So and what I mean by that is if you have a ridge top, get one up there where there is no water. Period. That's actually your hottest source. Um, most of your food sources, like let's say if you have a hot food plot, should have a, have a water source. If you have good prairie bedding or cover, you should have water sources near them. So there's there's a bunch of reasons why I'm saying the areas that I'm saying. So uh, for cover, the biggest thing there is we want to take advantage of some biological process, processes that are happening when deer are in cover. So for one, foes are... Fawns are being born in your prairies, your tall grasses, your cover, and you don't want to have them leave that sanctuary, that security, to go across your property and open to possibly get pegged off by a coyote. We want them to step right out of a prairie or a bedding source, drink their water, and go right back to cover. We don't want them out and about. Um, even for does, it takes a lot of stress off. They can have that fawning site um, when they're lactating and they don't want to use a lot of energy up. They want to produce milk, and now you're giving that water source um, to, to produce a lot of milk. They need a lot of water to actually produce a, 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 um, adequate amount of milk for their fawns. Um, forage alone definitely does a lot, but they also need that um, surface water, as we call it, to help with the lactation. Um, another thing, even with uh, when bucks are growing antlers, you know, so that's a very, very 
hard process on the body that requires a lot of things. And the one thing you'll find with deer are growing antlers, they're typically in the wide open. They're areas of low stem touts um, and areas that they don't damage the velvet, which is usually a lot of these prairies and things there too. Now they can step out and eat. Moving forward, we go into hunting season. And now we get to the point where we need water for, for one, just for activity. Things are browning up. You know, your your uh, all your natural forages are starting to dry. They're starting to lose their water content. Bucks are starting to, to move a lot more, to search things that way. And we want them to have active water. So it can literally be the make or break that a new buck enters your land, see that you have water, and he sticks around. You know, so we, we aim to really help improve those biological processes it's no different than humans. I mean, look at when a doctor tells you you're not drinking enough water. No different with the deer. You got to drink a lot of water. Um, on average, a deer needs about four to five percent of their body weight in just water a day, and you get a lot of that from the forage, but they also need a lot of that from from water. So, once again, kind of reiterate the question: where we like to place them is we like to place them near food and cover. And that's where we want our water. Um, and if you do buy food, have it within range. That's that's one of the biggest mistakes. People put it right there. They put it in the middle of the food plot. I don't know why that's a myth that people put in the food plot, but we like to put them in the corners where deer enter the food plots. As we know, mature bucks, they like to stand back. They like to go through those feathered edges, things that way, to slowly transition in. That's where we like a, a water source. Makes them feel comfortable. They can get that water and, and then enter the food source. Uh, but hopefully, if it's a big enough buck, he drinks water, and that's his last drink. So touch on a lot of things let's just go back so one one 25 foot by 25 foot pond per 25 acres okay and then let's get into details so i get a backhoe what kind of what kind of slope do i want on that ground yep so that's the biggest thing is uh you know a lot of people when they dig a pond they just dig a pond i mean it's there's a lot more to it so what we like to do is when we start digging the hole we like to have a three to one to four to one slope and obviously i know a lot of us are engineers and essentially what that means is for every four feet horizontally you go out you should be gaining one foot of water depth and you know let's say if you have a 25 by 25 foot pond and you do that slope you're going to get about three feet of depth you do that if you do a three to one you're going to get about four feet of depth um, in the middle and that is where we like to be um for a couple of reasons we like that slope for for one so it holds the soil when we're done putting the liner and everything in Two, it's actually so the deer can walk in and out freely and can kind of escape danger, you could say, freely. If the steeper it is, it's actually harder for them to get in and out, and they'll avoid the ones that are steeper. Um, another thing, too, is even like uh, going back to water tubs, what's the biggest worry everyone has? It's that raccoon, that mouse that fall in, and then they die and make it gross. We don't want the same thing happen in a pond, so a steep pond can still have that happen. So we want to have that proper slope um, to get everything started. So. Four to one to three to one slope. Okay, so we go in, we're digging our hole, twenty-five by twenty-five. We get a, we get the right slope, and and there's ways. Just go to YouTube, and they'll tell you, tell you how to figure to run your slope. Um, then we got to put a liner in there because we got to keep some, we got to keep the water in the hole. So it is kind of like a tub, but not because we're gonna we're gonna make it an ecosystem so now what kind of liner do i need to put in you know my hole yep yep so um and yeah and that's the biggest difference between a liner and a tub is this you know to kind of even go back is it's all about water quantity at the time and water quality so you're kind of you know and when i kind of start getting into why the ponds it kind of backtrack it's because i used to do a lot of tubs and things that way and 
I kind of got, for one, I got sick of cleaning out roll screen water that deer weren't drinking, just raccoons and coyotes. And two, it was sometimes where I get so many deer on those water tubs that they dry up. And now I'm in the bedding area, I'm busting the bucks, things that way. So you have a difference of 100 gallons to 5,000 plus gallons. Um, you know, so now we're going into it with the liner. Yes, it is plastic. It is a UV resistant material. And a lot of people always worry about, well, what about deer hooves? Um, I'm telling you that the liner material we have, it's a, so it goes by thicknesses. So there's a 24 mil and there's a 30 mil uh, liner we use. That 24 and 30 mil, it takes me a good deal of effort to put an actual razor blade through the material. And that's a knife, a sharpened knife. It's hard for me to push it through. Oh, your hoof is not going to puncture that liner. Now, billboard materials, sometimes even these kiddie pools, they're really fragile. They get brittle, and now it's broken, and you got to redo it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we usually like have a 24 or 30 mil liner. Uh, that's just a thickness thing that us in the pond and guest management industry, we kind of can help you pick which one's better for your pond. And from there, you know, then it's just a matter of property sizing it. So, when you do size the pond, you dig that hole. Let's say, you know, it's the 25 by 25, you essentially want to measure the pond when it's dug. So you put a tape through the middle and across, and you want to leave about two feet of overlap outside the pond. And that's just to help gain actually a little bit more water uh, from rain and things that way. That's why you want a little on that, the outside of it as well. Um, so that's kind of the start process of the liner. Um, some places we do actually want fabric, a landscape fabric underneath the liner. That's in areas that are very rocky, or you have a lot of sticks. Let's say you went through a pine plantation where there's a lot of roots, um, or you have to worry about frost with stones and things that way. So we put the fabric underneath to protect it, the liner, and then another piece of fabric. And then from there, we get into dirt. So then we started actually putting our dirt back on the pond. Okay, so we got fabric, liner, fabric, and then dirt. Yep. Do you ever put any uh, gravel or sand as a base? just like you're building a foundation where you, you dump some of that in. So um, you reduce the impact of, of rocks or other matter that could tear your liner. Yeah, I mean, if it's really, really rocky, um, it's not the worst to you know get a load of sand or something like that way, and then that'll help cushion it by itself. Um, and then people actually in sand country, they have it made where you don't need that bottom liner. You just gotta smooth it. Um, right. But yeah, it's, it's very rare that we ever have to uh, put something underneath. Uh, but we do it be really those areas where you have a lot of rot or rock where you're worried about that possible puncture. Uh, but that fabric alone, it's an eight ounce uh, woven fabric. Once again, it's very, very tough material. And usually that's enough. I mean, we've, we put some ponds in some areas where they've had to blast the pond with dynamite, just create the pond. So you have a lot of shale and stone and we just do the fabric a lot of times and, and your, your liner's protected. Okay, so now we we get the liner, so we're laying it in, and then we feather it uh, up to the edges, and you said you have some overlap. Mm -hmm. Then what kind of plants do I put in, you know, to, to start growing, you know, uh, natural filters? Yep, yep. So essentially once you get your dirt, so about four to six inches of dirt, cross the whole liner top, bury the whole thing. Um, after that, we wait till the water gets up. And what you'll find is all these ponds will find a natural, normal water level. Once that's established, that's where you want to start planting things. So where plants come into play is there's three different things that plants do for an ecosystem. And this is where ponds shine and tubs fail, is we're now building our ecosystem. So 
plants filter the nutrients. So unlike a poop where we want phosphorus, we want nitrogen, we want potassium, all these things. In a pond, we actually don't want it very rich in nutrients because what happens is that'll actually spark planktonic algae blooms and things that we just don't want to be occurring. So plants will filter out a lot of that phosphorus and nitrogen, use it so the pond is filtered naturally, um, improves clarity, takes out heavy metals, things that way. Next, the actual root systems and stalks of the plants. So once again, we're planting right at that, what I call the soil water interface. So it's right where the soil and water meet each other. That's where we plant. And the roots and the stems of those plants will act as a uh, biomedia source for bacteria to actually cling to. And not this bad bacteria everyone hears about. It's bad bacteria, bad bacteria. It gets me up a wall, but uh, it's beneficial bacteria. So um, these, and by beneficial bacteria, what I mean is ones that actually improve water clarity by um, and take out the nutrients. They take out nitrogen and take out ammonia. One thing that can destroy a pond is ammonia. Um, and they start converting these things to actually uh, more viable um, nutrient sources and elements. So we definitely want that to take place. And then lastly, and probably one of the most important thing about aquatic plants is you can use it to be an aquatic food plot. So uh, one of the major plants out there is arrowhead or duck potato. That's the number one uh, food plot plant for aquatics, you could say, in, in the world. Um, there are a lot of other ones that studies have shown um, water sedge, common burr reed, um, sago pondweed, small leaf pondweed, um, the list goes on and on. And if anyone's ever interested, I can throw you a huge list of nerded out plants that I know. That well, how do they get a hold of you? Since you mentioned yeah, so that, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so you can, uh, for one, I'm, I'm very active on Facebook, uh, on the groups and, you know, Habitat Managers. On the Team, team Grow page, I do uh, um, seminars here and there. Um, but also, you can also email me. Um, it's Zach, Z-A-C-H, at WisconsinLPR.com. Um, and I respond very quickly. But, yeah, pretty much if anyone's on Facebook, it's very easy to get hold of me or see me talking water or something on there. So That's great. So, okay, so now we, we've got, um, what do you call it, the potato, water potato or arrow yep, potato? Arrowhead. 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 So we get an arrowhead around the rim. What about cat and nine tails? What about those type of things? Is that good or not good? Or yeah, so so there are some plants that will try to overtake water um, anytime it's produced. Uh, so cattails is a biggie. The only thing we don't like with cattails is they're very very aggressive. So what you'll find is a cattail can grow to about two to two and a half feet of water. Well, your pond might be only three feet deep, and now you might have cattails through the whole thing, and now deer don't use it. So now it's just a cattail swamp. So you want to try to watch for those things, and a lot of times if they start growing, it's a matter of easily just grabbing and pulling them out. You don't want them to get established just because it's very, very hard to get rid of once they're established, and you usually have to do a treatment or something that way. Um, but another one that commonly people will see is a duckweed. Duckweed grows in a lot of these little ponds just because they're smaller, nutrient-rich ponds that, you know, it's perfect. Now, it will filter the water, but even that really, really thick layer duckweed can kind of hinder deer. And for that, we usually just go with a net. Take a net, scoop it out, toss it in your food plot, just add the nutrients in your food plot. But um, so yeah, there's a, there's definitely certain plants you want to plant because they're not aggressive. And that's why I like arrowhead, um, water sedge stays to the edge. Um, and even common burry, that's another one that stays right to the edge. It won't, it won't creep in far into the water. And that's what we, we don't want. So we want to stay right to the edge and no, no deeper. On Facebook Live, we're talking about how deer enter into um, 
the water source, the water hole, uh, the pond. And you mentioned yep. they actually go down to their brisket and then like to drink that way. They just don't – people see deer just sipping, um, you know, water from the edge, but actually they like to immerse themselves deeper yep. in that. And that's why we have to be careful of the slope. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that, we also have to be careful of setting up deer so they come in the right way so you get a shot. It's right. no sense in having a deer – the only way he comes in is, is direct on, which doesn't give you a shot at all, you know, to the deer. Correct. So how, Correct. how do you best do that? How, how do you plan the entrance and exit of deer to your uh, pond? Yep. So first and foremost, what I like to take in effect is is uh, your primary winds that might be hitting a certain food plot. And, you know, there's no sense of putting a pond if you know you are mainly having a southwesterly wind and you put it right there where you're getting winded every time. You don't want that. So first and foremost, I look at my winds, um, how the deer are entering a field where I don't want to get busted. Um, the next step from there is you know, we want to avoid going in the middle of food plots, uh, middle of middle of our food sources. We want to stay to the edges and a lot of times to the corners. So, you know, deer, they, they'd love to enter anything a lot of times from a corner. They just, they're driven to it. You know, they're an edge animal. So we'd like to put them right in the corner, about 20, 25 yards away from our stand. And one of the biggest things I've seen people do is they clear the whole area around the pond and they want deer to enter anywhere. We don't want that. You know, you don't want a deer to walk in where all you get is a good look of his face and his rack. He looks up and stands, sees you, and runs away. Um, and I think we've all been there where we get that look up and we're like, uh-oh, I'm busted. So we don't want that. We want a deer to come in horizontally to a pond um, or even walking across our stand location to get to the pond so we get that broadside shot. So to, to do that, to kind of help uh, get away where the deer are broadside when they enter the pond, what I'll do is like when I do dig my pond is I'll make the good slope, you could say, in front of the pond and the left and right sides of the pond. So essentially the whole frontal, you know, I'd say three quarters of the pond will be that great slope. On the back side, I tend to either go steep with my, my slope so the deer don't like it, or what I'll do is I'll take a lot of the brush I cleared out for building that pond, or even if I have extra dirt from digging the pond, and I'll put it all on that back side so deer just can't use it. Um, no. There are usually that one yearling that wants to still attempt it and then he falls in the pond. But uh, we like to do that strategy of getting brush and getting dirt, things that way, making it steeper where they don't want to be there. So they want to go to those properly sloped areas, the open areas, and give you that, that broadside shot. Because um, you're exactly right. What he said is deer, they want to go into their brisket, especially when it's warmer out, they want to cool off. But the main reason, obviously, they want to do that, go to brisket, is they like to drink with their head being horizontal and not down. That way they stay with their peripheral vision as they're drinking. They can see any predators coming because they're, once again, they're vulnerable when they're drinking. So um, when you do that, you'll see the deer want to do that, but then that's where slope also comes effective. It's too steep. They can't jump out of the pond and run away quickly. So they want to come into that little bit of area, jump out and run if they can. One thing I mentioned before, and I think it's well known that if anybody's a trapper or, or, knows about trapping, then you know that you funnel the game, the critters, to where your traps are and your bait is. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Well, you got to think of the same way when you're putting in a pond because you want to channel those deer, their entrance and exits, exactly where you want them to be. And you don't want them to be someplace that they're not. So you can do that. It's going to take time. You're going to have to do some research, and there's plenty of 
videos on there, but, um, you know, trappers have sets and they set them up for the specific species they're hunting. And, and that's what they do. And they're very successful at it because they've learned over time that if they put a set this way, it, it'll work. If it don't, then they'll just get around it and it doesn't work. So start thinking like a trapper and you will be a more successful hunter. And that can, it's the same thing with putting a stand up uh, into your food plot or wherever is you got to really start thinking about how, how do I set myself up for the best possible opportunity for success? And I'm guilty like everybody else who's listening to my voice of saying, Oh, this looks like a great place. Well, I didn't think it through because it was a great place but the bucks came behind me or they came and they were in cover and i was not in cover or whatever and i've watched buck just walk on by and i'm going how'd that work out not well not well at all all right so so we got so we got the we got the um the pond in the woods you may have one or two ponds based on what you said uh, if you've got a ridge, that's a great place to put a pond, even if it has to be smaller because there's no water up there. I mean, if you're up on a ridge, it's a great place to put it. But again, think about where you're putting it in proximity of your stand and the natural, uh, you know, movement of deer. Because um, there might not be any bedding area on that, on that ridge or not. It might just be a travel collar there. There's a lot of things to, to think about. Uh, on that so we get the pond in now we planted some some uh, arrowhead or other um you know life-giving plants if if you will how long does it take to get this um pond up and running up and percolating yep yep so just to get the pond full and deer to start using it i mean it's a matter of weeks um you know so a lot of times i dig these ponds and even before the pond even fills, I'll have deer already down in the bottom, uh, drinking the water that's already collecting. So, um, you know, I've had the next day where I've had my clients already have pictures of deer in the ponds, but that only have a couple inches of water because it's that fresh smell of water. They can smell it just like they can, that fresh dirt just attracts them. Um, you know, the aquatic plants themselves, they usually take it where you plant them, let's say, in the middle of the summer, um, early fall. And by that next season, you'll start seeing that growth, especially if you're doing seed. Uh, if you're doing plugs, you'll see that growth right away. But um, if you do see seed, don't expect to see much of like the arrowhead emerging that first year. You'll see it more year uh, two. So let's say this year you plant, you do your pond, it'll fill up this year, deer will start using it. And then what you'll see is um, the following year after you plant, you'll see all that arrowhead start start coming up right in the spring, right? Well, I should say late spring, April, May, you'll start seeing all those plants take off. Okay, so the pond looks like it's working because I can see tracks. Okay, mm-hmm. I've got some green. Now, do I do I put clover near it? Do I put other other forage near near the um, near the pond or not? Or you know, what do I do there? Yeah, so so a lot of times what I'll do, and um, and I can always share um, photos of my my designs as well. Is a lot of times half my pond will almost be planted food into food plot and the other half will be into what I would say is that feathered edge. So whether it be your cover, your, you know, a little bit of shrubs, whatever it be. So it's kind of always half and half. Um, but I definitely always plant right up to it. Um, you know, just to make it kind of in- integrated into that food plot system. So usually once again, that kind of that front half that once again, where you want your shot at, I'll plant that area 
and it does it there's such a wide variety a lot of times i like perennial just so um it's almost more of a buffer so you have your clover your chicories um you know there's a lot of other really good blends with uh even grand prix outdoors that they have that um, work great there and you know so that way you just mow it once in a while let the deer even just take you know take care of it um, but what we don't want to do is constant tilling or fertilizing that area because we don't want that nutrients really going to pond. So perennials typically are the best thing to plant around a wildlife pond. Okay, so notice, folks, you know, all the fertilizers don't need to go into a pond because then you'd be counterproductive. Yep, correct, correct. Yeah, we're food pots. We love nutrients. Ponds, we don't like them so much. Um, there's even where there's a lot of uh, water supplements on the market right now, mineral supplements that you put in the water. And um, as a biologist, I'm very anti them, just mainly because they are derived of, just like a deer mineral, phosphates and salt. Salt kills an ecosystem and phosphorus spikes growth in a pond. So we try to avoid that as much as possible. Even with a mineral site, always try to put it on the downhill side, never the uphill side of a pond, because we don't want those salts entering the ecosystem and possibly killing your beneficial bacteria and invertebrates. That was going to be my next question because a lot of people say, well, I'm going to put salt where legal, okay, or mineral where legal, you know, right near my pond because they could go to a drink of water, you know, they get some mineral, then they get the water, they get everything, now they get food, man, I've, I've got it made. But be careful where you put it because you don't want that leaching, that mineral leaching into um, into the water because that'll, that'll destroy what you're trying to do. Exactly, and that's what actually the problem a lot of times, so I do a lot of my research is on EHD. Um, and obviously we know that's a huge issue right now. And a lot of that is destroyed ecosystems, you know, and that's why they exist. So it's a lot of it's cattle ponds where they're just junk. I mean, they're, they're a cesspool to say the less because there's not a built ecosystem. We want to have a quality ecosystem, you know, so EHD, that's the reason why the Cudicotes midge, uh, the main midge for the disease, thrives is actually it's a very weak invertebrate, very, very weak, uh, I guess you say, even aquatic insect. If there's actual presence of competition within a pond, so other aquatic insects, macro, micro invertebrates, Cudicotes midge actually does not thrive. But if the ecosystem is destroyed, so let's say by salt um, or high fertilizing, there you have a lot of nutrients, that's when- Or urine die. from cattle. Correct, 100%. Yeah, the ammonia will kill everything um, from, from urine. And that's where we like to have beneficial bacteria that are um, they're called um, nitrifiers, the nitrifying bacteria. They'll actually convert ammonia to nitrates and nitrites that are actually positive in a system rather than negative. So that's why they have such an issue is actually very, very poor water quality. And so we don't want that. We want to have very quality water systems that you know, a lot of people say, am I just um, increasing how much EHT I'm going to have because I put a pond in? No. If you do it right, no. And that's what we want. We want to give our deer that quality water source that we actually reduce the possibility of the EHD passing on to your herd. And one sidebar on that, because some areas of the country have tremendous amount of water, the standing water becomes stagnant, it's lifeless, and that's where the Zakita midge yeah, it's a Culicotes midge. Yeah, okay. So it's uh, and a lot I'm, of that I'm sorry, I misspoke. I misspoke on that. But anyway, yeah. And, and so it's also known as blue tongue disease. It's yep. also known as blue tongue disease, and it hurts. Seemingly, it hurts bucks worse than does. Is that true? Is that a true statement? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, in my time when I was down in Iowa, a lot, we, we would find equal, kind of equal amounts. I mean, you see a lot more pictures of the Bucks because more people are obviously, you know, sad okay. when a four and a half year old, five and a half year old buck is found dead. But it does actually affect mature deer more um, than it does okay. affect younger deer. We're touching on a lot of things, but you can see, hopefully, we've been going about a half an hour here with, with Zach, that a live ecosystem is good not only for your deer, but for the other critters that live there, the birds and, and, and the raccoons and the squirrels and the rabbits and the foxes and the coyotes. Um, not that we want coyotes, but, you know, bears or whatever, because I'm thinking one of my friends farm, you know, by a lake, which the lake has a lot of water, but everything else is marsh. And I'm thinking, hmm, would he be beneficial to set up some ponds? Mm-hmm. based on yeah. what you you said i'm gonna i'm gonna mention yeah and uh and a lot of times with that that back, income. for him to have a conversation you know he owns ko farms yeah. and it's a nice nice 500 acre farm and um it's set up for whitetail hunting and um you know he's done a lot of great things with it but uh, he doesn't have any pond mm-hmm. he's got plenty of water and marsh but yeah, no real real good water and one of the points I want to even make too, like a lot of times, why these wildlife ponds and even the tubs, why they work so well, is they actually maintain a temperature that's more equal to the, the body, the internal body temperature of the white-tailed deer. So when they drink the water, their body does not go into shock. So if you even even the research of the human being, we're actually um, doing everything wrong by drinking cold drinks. Uh, we're shocking our system every single time we take an ice cold uh, bottle of water. But it tastes so good. It tastes so good, though. Especially on a hot day when you're working all day. But essentially what it does is what do we want to avoid with deer? We want to avoid stress. And every time they drink that cold system, that's actually a form of stress on the body. So when they drink that water that's closer to their internal body temperature, it actually produces less stress in their system, which in turn, a healthy deer with less stress is a bigger deer and healthier deer. So I know on our farm, there's a spring. It it runs forever. Mm -hmm. And yep. for a while, somebody had a stand up on that, and they never shot a deer off it because the deer never came in because it was it was cold water. I mean, you yep. could go there and get cold water. And you know, I had a talk with him one time and said, "You wonder why that happens?" And really, the answer was no. Yep. And because I learned a long time ago, elk are the same way. You know, yep. elk love the cattle, the stock tanks and everything. You see them in Arizona and you see them all these places where it's heated water, basically. And it's not out of, you know, out of a spring where it's really, really cold. Right. And elk are big animals. And so it does hit them. It does shock their system. Yeah, the only time so, you'll actually see the deer uh, seek out those cold water sources is the winter. Um, when you have flowing water sources, typically water um, out of the ground, groundwater is typically around 41 degrees Fahrenheit. So now you take it in the wintertime where everything else they are eating and things are very cold. It actually is a warmer water source now in the winter. So right. that's, that's the one time that actually active water source springs. If you hunt them in the late season, you can be very successful late season on those sources. And that's why you see, you know, buffalo and everything, you see the the water up in Yellowstone and everything, which is cold water, but in the wintertime, it's warm water. Mm-hmm. A paradox, but true. <laughs> well, it is. Yep. So so we got our pond. It's living. How long does it take 
you know, to really be, you know, giving off oxygen and, and, and filtering the water. So, you know, I've got a really healthy ecosystem for the deer. Yeah, I'd say, I would say the full ecosystem is ready to go um, in year two. Um, year one is establishing. Bacteria grows, grows very, very rapidly. Um, you can actually increase the speed of the ecosystem by adding bacteria. So there are bacterial products, enzyme, enzyme products, things that way to speed up the process. Um, that's stuff like myself as a biologist, we do um, apply regularly to a lot of ecosystems when they start up. And uh, so that can speed it up, but usually it's year two that that ecosystem is running full speed. So now, um, how many gear, deer can handle 25 by 25? I mean, risky a herd that's, I mean, to the actual drink it gone, you could, it would be a substantial amount. Um, it would be to take a long, long time. I mean, but when you're talking 25 by 25 pond, I mean, it's very typical to have 40, 50 deer that can frequent that pond, no issues. Um, I have one picture from my client that we did a 20 by 20 pond, and at one picture he has 15 deer utilizing that pond. Okay, so there there it goes. So all of us aren't farmers, ergo food plot failures, because we, we're not farmers. We were never taught to be farmers, and all of a sudden we're going to be a farmer. So give yourself, take a breath, everybody. When your seed doesn't work, it might not be the seed's fault. Just a shout out. For all seed companies, not just Grandpa Ray Outdoors, but all <laughs> seed companies, it's sometimes not the seed's fault. And I'm guilty of that, you know, throw and grow and stuff like that. How come it didn't come up? <laughs> you throw it on yep. rock and shale, it ain't going to come up. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> you laugh, but, you know, it's only money. So then, so now that's the forage. Now we can go into, now we're in the water. And I think water is just as important as the forage to keeping deer holding deer on your on your land you know because we want to hunt them we're doing all this thing to put food on the table and to have the thrill of the hunt and get out there and and, and watch wildlife and hunt wildlife and and kill deer i mean that's why we're doing this yeah. um, and so when you think of of hunting is there best time to hunt over water or not a best time to hunt over water how does how's all that work yeah, so really the, the best times is early season right out of the gate. Um, a lot of times bucks are very patterned to those water sources. Does are patterned to those water sources. Um, especially you start getting more southern um, parts of the U.S. Like last year I hunted in Kentucky, it was 97 degrees for their opener. Um, those are great times to be on the water. Um, I'd say the second time that you should really be near those water sources is the rut. Uh, peak, the pre-rut, rut, because rut, those are actively seeking out that water. Because once again, everything's brown, dead. You can't find it. So... Um, early season and the rut are the t two times I would definitely be on those water sources. And so you have to figure out, you know, is there a specific temperature? Say if it's over 80, over 70, where, where's the magic? Yeah, I mean, if it's risky, I mean, depending on your region, like here in Wisconsin, I mean, a hot day in September might be uh, low to mid 80s. And those are the days I'm absolutely getting, getting up in the sand over a pond. Um, those deer are going to be up and moving. They're going to have to go and drink um, just to keep, you know, their own temps down and cool themselves off. Um, you know, as far as when the rut goes, it, it really doesn't matter because um, those will be there. So you just got to wait, wait out for the big boy to come visit and check on his does down by the pond. But early season, yeah, I mean, those first two weeks when it's hot, 
I would definitely be on those those sources. Okay, so we get the we got hunting the ponds, we got setting up on the ponds. We've already talked about you know you control the entrance and exit. Now we got pond temperatures. People have said, well, if the pond isn't flowing, then it's going to die over over time. Is that true or correct or, or incorrect? It it all depends how it's set up. So essentially, what Mother Nature wants to do to um, most uh, pond systems. So, so lakes are a little different. That's where it's own animal. But with ponds, they're called eutrophic or nutrient rich. That's just a, a term to say how aged the system is. So Mother Nature wants to fill all ponds in. She wants to make them all swamps, essentially. You know, so that's by just things dying, plants dying, leaf litter, all that stuff slowly fills up muck. Um, and not that quick. I mean, a lot of people think it'll fill up in, in a couple of years, but uh, what we see in like a stormwater pond or private ponds that I manage, it's usually about anywhere from um, barely a tenth of an inch to maybe a half an inch a year. Um, so it takes a long time to fill in a pond. Um, and that's the only way that pond would actually die, I guess, per se. But these ponds are, since you have an ecosystem, they're not going to die. Um, they have adequate dissolved oxygen all single, all year long because they are shallow. So they're constantly actually turning over and things that way. Um, you know, you, as long as you have a good plant system and you have some beneficial bacteria, you know, the, the pond won't die. Um, it's more when they're, you know, designed poorly or way too shallow or um, things that way where you just speed up how deep, how, how um, much muck builds up. But the pond itself, it's just a matter of how long it takes to age it to fill it in, but it won't die. How about freeze out? How about freezing top to bottom at zero, you know, for two months yep. in Wisconsin? Yep. Yep. So essentially freezing, all that does is, so like plants, they all, they all go dormant. So they will all recede. So like the duck, uh, duck potato arrowhead, what it does is it stores all its energy into those little potatoes that are in the soil. So it stores its energy. Next year it shoots up from more of those little tiny starch potatoes. Um, all the bacteria go dormant. And there's actually even cold water strains of bacteria that then become active. Uh, but all warm water strains go dormant through the winter. So that's all it really happens. It's no different a tree. Um, just, you know, taking its leaves off and, and having the bud system and putting all its nutrients in the roots. Everything just goes dormant in the pond. The freezing won't kill it. The only thing time it will kill it would actually be if you had a fishing pond um, and you had a freeze out. That would be the only thing that's ever vulnerable is fish. Um, but even your frogs, they'll go down and they'll become dormant if they're in your pond. And they go down to, a, I want to say it's one heartbeat per minute. So practically dead. Um, and they'll just be floating down there. So the whole system will shut itself down per Mother Nature's code and then come back to life um, in the spring. Interesting. Folks, if you have questions for Zach, uh, reach out to him where? Uh, you can either reach me on our Facebook pages, um, Wisconsin Lake Pond Resource or Creek Bottomland Management. Um, otherwise, you can email me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at WisconsinLPR.com. The water. Water comes out of the, out of the air, fills up the ponds, and then if we've done our job right, we've got something that's going to last you know, forever, really. Mm -hmm. How Correct. much of a, you know, how much to set up that 25 by 25 pond by having someone dig it? I'm not saying hand dig a thing and then we get the liners. That's basically all we need. Then we need some seed to put around it, um, that arrowhead or something yeah, I mean, like all that. Set, all said and done, I mean, risky, you're, 
you know, usually looking for like a 25 by 25 pond, probably about $500, um, 500. And if you get a little crazier with it, you can maybe go up to 750, depending on your soil type. But um, usually it's found right around that $500 range. And that's for having a backhoe come in or, you know, some sort of way to dig it out. Yep. And then get the things. Now, people could reach out to you and, and find out, hey, where do I get the right liner and, and that type of stuff, right? Correct. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, with, with water, it's really, uh, you know, it's just kind of got to just treat it right. You know, don't uh, don't treat it wrong. It's Mother Nature. It's no different than not taking care of your food plots right. Uh, a pond has to be, you know, taken care of as well. Um, I actually do have a pond maintenance kit I've designed. So if you do have a pond, it's kind of a little more gross. Um, we have a way to fix that as well. Um, we also do free site visits as well. So if people have questions and things like that about existing ponds, things that way, we do uh, we do site visits around the state of Wisconsin. So, and how much you charge for a site visit? Um, so for the state of Wisconsin, it's we have a free site visit up to 60 miles from our office, and then after that, I want to say it's about $300. So we do cover the whole state. Um, but if you're out of state, just email me, and, and then I'd love answering questions and things that way. And pictures are worth a thousand words, so I can definitely help out wherever I can. So within 60 miles of where you're at, you get a free yep. look over? Yep, correct. Okay. Any questions to me? No, not really, Bruce. <laughs> no, I appreciate you having me on. Well, this will be up, um, I think, in a week. It'll be up the first week of March. That's when that's when it'll, it'll air. So it's just been a pleasure having you on. Remember, folks, um, you know, follow Zach on Facebook, and uh, he does really know his stuff. And if you're not a member of Team Grow from at Grandpa Ray Outdoors, join there because Zach does do seminars there. So he, that's one reason you want to be a member of Team Grow is because you get people like Zach giving you ins and outs. And we're just giving you a, a primer because Zach could spend the whole day just talking about how to dig a pond. I'm yep. sure of that. <laughs> yep. Well, Zach, it's been great. Thank you so much, sir, for being a guest on Let's Talk Deer. Thank you very much, Bruce. Appreciate it. This is a notice from Bruce Hutchin, host of Let's Talk Deer. Let's Talk Deer receives compensation from Grandpa Ray Outdoors for podcast and Facebook Live and other, other communication I utilize on social media.